This is the word of the Lord. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Our lead pastor and teacher, Pastor Sean Myers, sent me a text this morning that he is really sick today, uh, which is a bummer. So you can pray for Sean and his family. Um, but I knew I was going to preach. I've known for a while, so that's not, I mean, it's not, don't, it's, don't be impressed because I didn't just find out this morning. I knew months ago. But you can pray for Sean. Um, Let me make you aware of two quick announcements before we jump into our text today. Um, The first is, we believe as a church the best way to understand the Bible and let it change us is when we're gathered on Sunday to work through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've been doing that in the book of Jonah. We're going to finish out the book of Jonah today, which means next week we will be in a new book of the Bible. And we're going to start in Philippians. So this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. We're going to be in Philippians for the month of June and the month of July. So just so you're aware, we'll be starting that next week. We're excited to see what God is going to teach us through the book of Philippians. The second thing you need to be aware of that also pertains to next week is next week we're going to have a family Sunday worship. Let me explain what this is. Um, We make an intentional effort four times a year to bring our kids into the service. And so we do it once on Easter, we do it once at Christmas Eve, and then we pick two other Sundays that we do it. So we want to bring all of our kids in here, and some of you might be going like, well, I have a two-year-old. That's a terrible, terrible idea. Don't worry. Um, I hear some amens out there. Um, We will have redemption um, kids available from a zero to five. And so if you have, like I have a niece who's a year old and she just started to walk and she's everywhere, that would probably not be helpful for her or anyone else to have her in here. Um, but we do want to expose some of our older kids. Normally you drop them off on the way and then they're like, what are you doing there? We want to expose them to what it looks like to worship God in the midst of sitting under his teaching, listening and singing music, to uh, take communion together. And so that's going to be next week. So we will send out a reminder 
um, on our digital bulletin called The Loop, but just be aware that they'll, we'll all be in here together for the launch of Philippians. It'll be a crazy, crazy fun time. It should be good. Let me pray, and we will jump into Jonah chapter 4. Father, would you be with us this morning? God, would you shape and mold our hearts, make them soft, as we use Jonah chapter 4 as a mirror to hold up um, to our hearts, to say, what are the parts that are hard and dark that need to be turned into a soft and moldable direction towards you? God, we need you to do that. We need your spirit to help us with this this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, my wife and I, a couple years ago when the show This Is Us came out, loved it. I don't know, has anybody watched that show ever? Um, we're not up to speed on the most recent, I think, season or season. We might be two seasons back. But the very beginning, we just loved that show. The writing, the creativity, the way the story is woven throughout time. Just really, really um, enjoyed watching it. And so about halfway through the season, what you started to see happen, and you see with other shows, is that they'll take the first 30 seconds of an episode to kind of explain what happened last week. Because if you miss an episode and you're watching a current episode, the storyline is kind of all over. And so you need that 30 seconds to be caught up on the major points and what's happening so you don't get lost in the current episode you're watching. And so for us, what I want to do this morning is get us caught up to speed on the story of Jonah Because some of you are new this morning, and some of you maybe didn't come to every week we've been teaching Jonah, and maybe some of you have been to every week, but you forgot, like, what did we, what happened in Jonah chapter 2? I don't really remember what happened there. Um, So we're going to do a quick review. The way we're going to do that is I'm going to show a video. This is from the Bible Project, guys. They do great work up in Portland. We've shown their videos before. We're not going to watch the whole video because it's like nine minutes. We're just going to watch four minutes of chapter 1, chapter 2 and chapter 3, and that will catch us up to speed and give us some ground to go after chapter 4. So watch this four-minute video, and we'll jump into chapter 4. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now, the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. 
The storm subsides, and they end up fearing the God of Israel, and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange, watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast... Jonah utters a prayer, where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him, and he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now, his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong, or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites, and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces. Okay, you ready for chapter four? Are you so fired up to hear what happens? Um, you should be, because even as you see this video, and if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, most people only read chapters 1, 2, and 3. Most people are only familiar with that part of the story. Even if you look at the children's Bibles today that are out on the market, they say Jonah 1 through 4, and then you read them, there's no Jonah 4. Because this chapter is a little strange and a little weird. You're not sure what to make of it. And then even if you read the end of chapter 3, which Ren read for us, look at the last words of chapter 3. Jonah 3.10 says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented from the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's it. Tie a bow on it. Jonah's done. That's what most people think this book is about, but what happens in Jonah chapter 4 that God gives us, I believe, actually exposes the whole purpose of the book. You can't really understand the book of Jonah without chapter 4. Warren Wearsby, who's a commentator, says this about this issue. He says, if a book had ended in the last verse of chapter 3, history would have portrayed Jonah as the greatest of prophets, after all, preaching one message that motivated thousands of people to repent and turn to God was no small accomplishment. But the Lord does not look on the outward things. 
The Lord looks at the heart and weighs the motives. And this is exactly what we see happen in chapter 4. The Lord looking at Jonah's heart. The book of Jonah ends with what seems to be kind of like this abrupt ending. There's this dialogue between Jonah and God. And what happens is God corrects him, corrects Jonah, and you don't get to hear Jonah's response. God asks a question and you don't hear the response. And I think that's an intentional move by the author to help us realize that we're the ones that are supposed to answer that question at the end of the book. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, as we're reading the story of Jonah, we see that God shoots an arrow right at Jonah's heart. But as the readers, all of a sudden Jonah disappears and we realize the arrow is sailing at us. What we're going to find out this morning is if we use the story of Jonah as a mirror, it will expose our hearts. It should expose that we serve a God who loves and moves towards his enemies, and he's calling us to do the same. So let's jump in. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, it is not... Here it is. It's the Bible app saying it. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> so this is, not, this is not why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How is Jonah feeling in this moment? He's... Angry, verse 1 tells us that he is exceedingly angry. The original language in the Hebrew is he's burning with anger. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel so angry that your blood is just boiling? This is how Jonah feels. Let's find out why. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Let's stop there. Sean mentioned this last week. Um, the literary structure of these four chapters, which I love, is really interesting. Chapters 1 and chapters 3 actually parallel each other. And then chapters 2 and chapters 4 parallel each other as well. And so what we should know as a reader is there's one other time that Jonah prays in the four chapters. It's the very beginning of chapter 2. And because chapter 2 and chapter 4 parallel each other, we as readers should go, okay, what happened? How did Jonah pray in chapter 2, and Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 is when he's in the belly of the fish, and he's desperate, and he's needy, and he's crying out to God for mercy, and that's his prayer. And we see his response to that prayer because God answers that prayer in mercy, in grace, and saves him, spits him out onto dry land, and Jonah's response to that in verse 9 of chapter 2 is thankfulness. He's grateful That's his attitude for receiving God's grace. But now we see in verse 2 of chapter 4, he prays to the Lord. And this grace that was given to him in chapter 2 is now given to his enemies. And what is his reaction? It's anger. It's rage. So Jonah's okay with the grace coming his way. But if it goes out to those people he doesn't like, he's not a fan of it. Keep going in verse 2. Again, he prayed to the Lord and asked, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? 
This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So now we know why Jonah ran. We don't know in the first chapter, but now it's being revealed in chapter 4. He's running because he's saying, this is not fair. God, these people are wicked people. They've done terrible things. They'll continue to do terrible things, and you're not going to punish them? This is not fair. He's angry at what God is doing, or he's angry at what God's not doing. What he is doing is he's quoting Exodus 34, chapter, six, or chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, as he quotes back to the Lord this idea that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And you have to understand something about the context of Exodus 34. Exodus 34, specifically verses 6 and 7, is like to the nation of Israel, like John 3.16 to us as Christians. We all kind of know it. That's kind of what we stamp our, our claim on in Christ. And so that was the same thing. This is a conversation that Moses is having with God back in the Exodus. And he's saying, let me describe to you who I am as God. Slow to anger, abounding in love, steadfast. And this actually, this passage comes up more and more than any other passage in the Old Testament when it talks about God describing himself. Look at what it says, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you notice the difference between Exodus and 34, 6, and 7, what Jonah says to God. He leaves out the back end of verse 7, doesn't he? He doesn't talk about this idea that God will punish the guilty because he doesn't see it. It doesn't seem to make sense to this. And so Jonah begins to read this verse selectively. He ignores that back end of verse 7. He creates a simplistic picture of God that simply loves everybody with no judgment and no evil because clearly, God, you're not raining down judgment on these people. So you must just be a God that just loves everybody and he's not happy with that. And what he really does is he's using this text, not the full breadth of it, but just part of it. He uses it to justify his indignation, his anger, his nationalism, his racism, his bitterness, because God, clearly you're not doing what I want you to do. And he doesn't by faith believe verse 7 of Exodus 34. And God's response to Jonah's rant is the same way he actually describes himself in Exodus 34. He moves towards Jonah with mercy and grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love as he moves towards Jonah with a question. Verse 4, and the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? That's all God asked. God doesn't prove him wrong. God doesn't ask him, Who, where were you when I created everything? He just says, does it do you well to be angry? And we really don't see 
Jonah's response to this question. We don't know if he just walks off and he's mad and he's so angry he can't even talk to God and he just leaves because the next scene we see in verse 5 is where he is. Let's look at Jonah verse, um, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. So Jonah doesn't respond to this question that God asked him about his anger, but he just leaves in his anger. He goes out to pout, and he goes out of the city, and he sits there, and he's really, really frustrated. And I imagine what's happening in this moment is he's saying, I'm going to get far enough away from the city where if the Ninevites turn from their repentance, or maybe they didn't really repent. Maybe they just were pretending to repent, and God is going to get them. And I want to sit back, and I want to watch it happen. That's what he's doing in this moment. He doesn't go home. He wants to really see the destruction of this city. It's interesting to think about Jonah's emotional state as he goes outside the city and he looks at the people that are wicked, that have wronged him. He's angry. He's full of rage. In comparison, a couple of months ago, as we were leading to Easter, we see Jesus outside the city in Jerusalem, looking down on the people that are going to betray him and kill him. And what is Jesus' emotional state? He has compassion. He weeps for the city. Even in the midst of Jonah's temper tantrum, the Lord continues to move towards him. Let's look, verse 6. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So in his grace, the Lord makes a plant that grows up over Jonah to give him shade from his discomfort. And how does Jonah feel about this? text tells us he feels happy, exceedingly happy because of the plant. Now, I have some friends in high school that would read that passage and they would say, well, like, what kind of plant are we talking about? Because, like, you know, we could roll up a plant and smoke it, and we would be exceedingly happy, just like Jonah. That's not the type of plant. That's not, just in case you're wondering, that's not the type of plant that um, the Bible is describing there. I was talking about marijuana. I don't know if any of you have smoked it or thought about smoking it. That makes people happy. That's not what's happening here. I'm not going to make that joke again, ever. Um... <laughs> So from this verse, here's what we do see. God makes this plant. It shades him. He's exceedingly happy about this, what God does. So from this verse, we know that Jonah has positive feelings in his emotional arsenal. The problem is that he gets way too excited about the wrong thing. He's not happy about an entire city turning from their wicked ways. An entire city turning from their wicked ways. Instead, he's happy about a plant that gives him some shade. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, you do, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. 
So God in his grace, again, moving towards Jonah, appoints this worm to attack this plant, killing it. And on the surface, we might read this story and we might read this interaction and think, man, God is, he's just like a bully. He's putting a plant up and then he's taking it away and he sends this wind. That seems really odd and really angry and really mean of God. But again, we have to slow down to understand this story because God is not being mean in this moment. Instead, he's using the circumstances to expose the twisted priorities of his prophet. I mean, can you hear the sovereign nature of God in this story and specifically in those couple verses? God sends a storm. God appoints a fish. And in these three verses, God appoints the plant, he appoints the worm, and he appoints the wind. So God appoints both good things and things that we would consider like, man, that's kind of that's rough. And for us, when we look around at our circumstances, whether it's the people that you're connected with or the circumstances that are happening, you might look around and you say, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I'm frustrated this has happened. This seems bad. It can't be from you. And we have to at least consider the option that God could be appointing our circumstances. He could be appointing those specific people that you don't understand why they're in your life. He could be sovereignly doing that to help you realign your priorities to him. And counseling people pastorally, there's, just, there's never a lack of hurting people. We just hurt each other. And if you look, even if you look at the story of the Bible, the first scene we see outside of the garden, out away from God in Genesis chapter 4, is a brother that gets angry and he kills his brother. And life is hard. People are hard. We make mistakes. We sin. We turn and we hurt each other, sometimes intentionally, sometimes by accident. And most people in our lives, we just want them to go away the hard people. And some of the people that are hard in your life, you actually need them to go away. If they're abusive, you need to put healthy boundaries in front of you. But most of the people aren't like that. We just dislike them. We don't like what they do to us. We don't like what they say to us. And they're hard to be around. They're difficult. But what if God is divinely appointing those hard people and those hard circumstances in your life to actually mold and shape you to look more like him? Walter Wink puts it this way in his book, Engaging the Powers. He says, this is the gift our enemy may be able to bring us. To see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom show us our flaws. They're our friends precisely because they're able to overlook and ignore these parts of us. The enemy is therefore not merely a hurdle to be left over on the way to God. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. We cannot access those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror that our enemies hold up to us. So who are the people that God has you around constantly, coworkers, family member, friends? Who are, the situ- who are the people and what are the situations that God has divinely appointed you in that don't seem to make sense, you don't understand it, and all you're doing is praying that God would take it away instead of saying, God, how do you want to change me through this circumstance?
Because God has no problem leading you in the path of discomfort. He has no problem making you uncomfortable, whether it's people or circumstances, if it gets you to your ultimate goal of loving him and loving other people. And again, we are so consumed with comfort in our culture that we think, oh, that can't be God, or this is terrible, or God, what are you doing? And what if God is using that specific situation to change you? And Jonah, as we see in this text, is more concerned by his physical, personal comfort than the spiritual well-being of an entire city. He's more concerned with his personal comfort than the spiritual well-being of an entire city. And that's a problem for a prophet of God. And if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus in here and you're making your personal comfort higher than caring for other people, that, that's a problem as well. Let's continue in the text. Let's see how God in his grace is going to use both these people, the Nevites, and the circumstances, what we see with the plant and the wind and the worm, to expose Jonah's dysfunctional motives and to show him how his priorities are out of whack. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor you did not make grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God is helping Jonah understand what he ought to care about. Not some plant that's here one day and gone the next. I love the timing of this as he lets him know this plant was only here for one day. You didn't do anything to make this plant happen and this plant is gone the next day. And sometimes for us, we make our priorities so important on these things that aren't going to last. They don't matter. And we get so angry when they get taken away. And God is saying, this is what matters. It's people and cows, clearly, from this weird ending, right? And much cattle, question mark. Really what I think this is about, honestly, is the idea that in America we often, thinks, we often think that sin is just individual. Just me and my salvation and God, I need to get right with God, that's true. But sin is way bigger, it's cosmic in scope. And so it cares about not just your individual sin, but it cares about communal sin, cosmic sin. And the gospel answers these questions. So cattle at the time was a part of the way the Ninevites got their money. It was a trading. It wasn't just that God was pro-animals, which I think he is, but it was this idea like he cares for the whole city, the well-being of the whole city. He wants the whole thing to flourish, not just the individual people, but everything around it to put it all back together again as he called it to in the original creation. One of the other interesting things as this story ends and we kind of ramp down is the way the book ends, which we mentioned at the very beginning, like, God has this interaction, he corrects Jonah, and he asks him a question, and then we don't get to hear Jonah's response to this question, because again, I think what the author is doing is helping us understand that it's not really about Jonah, it's really about you. What are you doing with the people that God has divinely appointed in your life that have hurt you, and what are you doing with the circumstances that maybe he has divinely appointed in your life that don't seem to make sense? 
What are you doing with those things? How do you respond to those two situations, people and circumstances? And the best way I know how to illustrate this, I'm going to have Josh come up here, so come on up, Mr. Miles, is I want you to imagine that you grow up with a backpack, and actually this backpack is attached to your back, your whole life. And everybody has a backpack, by the way, it's not just you, so you're not some type of weirdo. Um, And everywhere you go, you have to take this backpack with you. You can never take it off. It goes with you everywhere. When you eat, when you go to work, when you lay down, when you play, when you do everything you do, this backpack is on you. And what begins to happen when we hurt each other is a brick goes into the back of your backpack. So it could be something little, like somebody said an offhanded comment to you, there's a brick that goes in your backpack. It could be something bigger, like maybe you were abused. Your parents, somebody that you should have trusted, did something terrible to you. A brick goes in your backpack. I know of friends that have been misrepresented and have been, have been accused of certain things, and it's unraveling their life, something they didn't even do, and a brick goes into their backpack. could be something else. It could be relationally. Somebody hurt you. Somebody betrayed your trust, and a brick goes into your backpack. So these bricks will continue to stack up and stack up and you're not really even aware of it and then all of a sudden you're walking around with this weight that you're not meant to walk around with. And if you don't know Jesus in this room, the best way to get these bricks out of your backpack is because physically you can't, I can't reach back and get it. I, I can't do it. I know I'm athletic, but that's not, it's not going to work. And so what I want to start doing is that people hurt me I want to hurt them back. Makes me feel a little better, right? So if Josh doesn't have any bricks in his backpack, I'm, I want to sh- put some bricks in his backpack. He just put some bricks in my backpack. Let's settle the score. And it's revenge, and it's this idea that we think is going to solve the problem and actually makes it worse. And so we treat revenge in a couple different ways. We can do revenge actively. If Josh says something negative to me, I say something negative back to him. I put a brick in his backpack. Or it can be passive revenge. Maybe Josh is reaching out to me, wants to talk to me, and I, I'm not going to return his call. I'm not going to text him back because he's hurt me. That's a form of passive revenge. At the deepest spiritual level, revenge is really like trying to take control of the situation. It's believing that God isn't going to make things right. You're saying, God, I don't believe you're going to do what needs to get done to this person that's hurt me. Don't you see I'm hurting because of that decision? And this is how we live. We walk around heavy, angry walk around bitter at life and at people. We start to get like Jonah. The smallest things will make us so angry. And we don't want to be around anybody. We don't want to be around ourselves like in the book of Jonah. It's better that I would just die. And we're walking around with these heavy burdens that we're not meant to walk around with. If I have to give Jonah any credit in the story, it's the fact that he doesn't see any form of punishment given to the Ninevites. It doesn't make sense to him. If God is perfectly merciful and he's perfectly just, then where is the justice for what the Ninevites have done? 
And the difference between us and Jonah is where we are in the story and time. The saints of the Old Testament had to live on faith alone. Hebrews 11, trust God. Trust that God will end up punishing the wicked. But we have the privilege of being on the other side of the cross. Because the cross is where God lives out the perfect tension of being perfectly merciful and perfectly just. And he pours out his wrath on his son. For wicked people like the Ninevites, wicked people like Jonah, wicked people like me, wicked people like you. And we get to receive his mercy. So even when we receive his mercy, we become a Christian. Now we have access, but I still can't take these things out on my own. Right? You still have hurts and scars from people that have hurt you, and you're thinking, I, I can't even imagine forgiving those people. Even though I've been forgiven, I still don't. The, what they did to me, you don't really understand. And if you don't take that step of faith and ask God to change you in prayer, you can't ever take these things out of your back. You're going to walk around in life bitter and angry. And so here's what it looks like. It looks like praying and asking God's spirit, saying, God, I can't do it. I don't even want to forgive this person because of the pain, but I trust you. Would, would you can, can you take that person? Can I, by faith, I want to forgive them. And when you start happening and you start doing that, God begins to take those hurts, those bricks out of your backpack. You don't have to live heavy anymore. It's a step of faith. Forgiving people that have hurt you is a process takes time. It's not just overnight. It's continual to say, God, I need to forgive. I need to release. God, I don't want to do it, but I'm trusting that you'll change my heart so that you don't have to live heavy anymore. You don't have to live bitter. You don't have to live angry. You can live free in the beauty of the gospel. We need to be reminded of that this morning. I think that's what Jonah points us to, that we don't have to live like that when the question gets asked back to us, can we say, God, I trust you even in the midst of my hurt. Would you change my heart and save me? Help me forgive that person. Help me trust that circumstance that you have me in. So when we take communion this morning, what I want you to do is when you take that piece of bread, would you focus on that person that's hurt you? And would you be reminded that Christ's body was broken for that person? Would you be reminded as you dip it in the wine or the juice that his blood was shed for that person that hurt you? As the nails went into his hand, he was giving the payment for what that person did to you. And ask him to free you from that burden. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need to be exposed just like you exposed Jonah to his sin, to his dark heart. We need you to expose us, to our circumstances, Father, to the people that are hard for us. God, we want to live people that are free, that can trust you, and we need your help to enable us to do that. So Jesus, would you change us, Spirit? Would you mold our hearts, especially as they're hard and they're dark, and we've been carrying these burdens for a really long time, and they're so deep, we don't even know where to start. I pray we would start by trusting you by faith just to say, God, change me. Help me. 
Change my heart. We trust you for that. We pray this in your name. Amen.